Hello and welcome to the Arate podcast. My name is Richard Triggs and today's guest is Greg Steele, CEO Australia Pacific at Arcadis. It's wonderful to have you along again today, and I'm really looking forward to bringing this conversation with Greg Steele to you. Let me briefly introduce myself. My name is Richard Triggs, and I'm the managing partner of Arate Executive. And we recruit CEOs, senior leaders, and non-executive directors for our clients throughout Australia. We also provide a range of career coaching and advocacy services. So if you're a senior executive actively looking for a new role, I'd welcome the opportunity to have a chat to you about how we can help. Let me now introduce to you, Greg Steele. Greg Steele is the CEO Asia Pacific at Arcadis, who acquired his previous employer, Haida. Arcadis is a leading global design and consultancy firm for natural and built assets. They employ over 27,000 people in over 70 countries around the world and generate over 3.4 billion euros in revenue. Greg is also chairman at Engineering Aid Australia and a board member of Rhodes Australia. His professional qualifications are a Bachelor of Civil Engineering and also a postgraduate diploma in management. Greg lives in Brisbane with his wife and family. Sit back and enjoy this conversation with Greg Steele. Greg, welcome to the Arate podcast. Lovely to have you along on a uh, uh, Brisbane morning here, looking out the window a bit overcast. It's been a terribly muggy summer, hasn't it? Sure has. Thanks, Richard. You know, great, to, great to be here. Yeah. Um, Looking for a little bit of respite in this humidity and hopefully over at Stradbroke Island this weekend, um, get that sea breeze, it's yeah. a nice place to escape. To. I know you spend a fair bit of time there now, don't you? Yeah, try to. Uh, we've got uh, finished the holiday house there about six months ago. Okay. Uh, I just find it just a great place to escape, stress relief, um, and really get back to uh, being a little bit more present. Right, excellent. Well, look, for the benefit of the people who are listening to this podcast, why don't you just uh, introduce uh, your current range of professional responsibilities? Yeah, sure, sure. So, uh, first and foremost, CEO for Arcadis Australia Pacific. Mm-hmm. So, Australia, New Zealand, Pacific Islands, PNG, etc. Um, we're um, one of seven global regions within the Arcadis world. Okay. Um, the other responsibilities I have, and that's about a thousand people. Right, um, within your mandate. Yeah. Right, and what, tell us about Arcadis, what are they all about? So Arcadis uh, acquired Hyder, which I was, mm-hmm. um, about a little bit over 12 months ago. Mm-hmm. Um, really do design and consulting in for the built and natural assets. Okay. Okay. So a lot of environmental work, business advisory, really try to work along that full range of the asset life cycle. Okay. So where we were in um, Hyder and um, in Australia, 
was really focusing on that detailed design space, but now we're with our Arcadis as assistants, we're really broadening out into more business advisory, okay. project program management, environmental okay. remediation type work. And when you say built and natural assets, what's some example of both of those? Okay, so built assets, obviously hard infrastructure, buildings, um, that. Um, those types, road, rail. Okay. In, in the natural assets, we do a lot of environmental work. Okay. Um, we're doing a big program um, in, in uh, Latin America, in Brazil at the moment, in the right. rainforests. Okay. Um, we do a lot of water work. Right. Where we really look to preserve, you know, in a sustainability sense, um, um, you know, aspects of those natural assets which are important to us all. And, you know, what I really liked about Arcadis coming in um, we don't have a passion. Uh, sorry, we don't have a vision. We have a passion. Right. And our passion is to improve the quality of life. Okay. And be recognised as the best. Mm-hmm. And so, in that improving the quality of life, we really got you know, heavily into both that built and natural mm-hmm. um, assets. Okay. I'm interested in talking a little later about you know uh, pre-Arcadis, what the height of business looked like, and going through that acquisition process and some of the opportunities and challenges that came with that. But before we get to there, let's uh, start where it all began. Tell us a little bit about where you were born and mum and dad and growing up uh, your early life. Yeah, sure. Born and bred Queenslander, uh, born in Innisfail, uh, North Queensland. Uh, Dad was in the bank and hence shifted around a lot. Right. And so uh, Townsville, Winton, Mareeba, Cairns, and then down to the Gold Coast. So I was changing schools every couple of years. Right. And reflecting on that, that really formed a big part of what I wanted to do or didn't want to do okay. uh, in the future. I think moving schools and, and, and having to make friends yep. every few years has really pushed me outside my comfort zone. I okay. think I appear very extroverted, but right. I think that's come with a lot of practice. Right, that's um, interesting. Um, uh, uh, so if you were to do uh, Myers-Briggs, are you by nature extroverted or introverted? Um, extroverted, but not not by much. Right. And then people find that hard to believe. But I think through a lot of practice yeah. and having to right. um, push myself out there, you, you, you end up practicing it and being appearing as an extrovert. Yeah, I, I, one thing I recently learned, I did Myers-Briggs for the first time in, I don't know how long, 20 years. And uh, my role requires me to be extremely extroverted, but in Myers-Briggs, I'm actually almost entirely introverted. So that was a, you know, it's a, being an extrovert is a skill as well as a predisposition, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. And so did you have brothers and sisters? Yeah, uh, brother, Brad, who's also a consulting engineer. Oh, really? Uh, Older or younger? Uh, younger. Okay. A competitor, and uh, we take that competition out to the <laughs> tennis court. All right. And we have a thing called the Steel Cup, which we play for each year, just the two of us. All right. Um, our, our, our children are all very embarrassed about that, but... Uh, and so he's working for a competitor as well? Yes, he's, right. uh, he's with Hatch. Okay, yeah, okay. Yeah. So in moving around Queensland uh, like that, also one of the things I didn't want to do is um, move my children and right. family around. Right? Yeah. And uh, so we moved to the Gold Coast and Dad sort of resigned from the bank and did other things there and that's where we settled. Went, okay. to, went to University of Queensland yep. um, Engineering. Mm-hmm. First, um, good, great time, great time. And did you Fabulous. work at all through high school or university? Yeah, look, a fish and chip shop down the Gold Coast. Okay. At the beer money. Right, um, yeah. So that was, that was good, very supportive parents. Okay. And uh, I stayed on campus and they funded all that. Okay. And, um, you know, really support. Great, they, they 
formed a great foundation for me personally. I, yep. I think good values and an education. Right. You know, I think that's uh, they did a sterling job in that space. And why engineering? What was it about that industry that it attracted you? Gee, I, I think uh, Richard, looking, um, I think seeing tangible outcomes. Yeah. I think that was the main thing. Okay. Um, working on something and seeing something built or designed or changed to improve the quality of life, and, okay. I, and I think that's why that arcade's passion resonates with me mm-hmm. so so well. Um, so my my first job, um, Main Roads Queensland. Yeah. Yeah, down the Gold Coast okay. initially. Um, uh, and Main Roads was fantastic mm-hmm. in those days in moving, forcing you to move mm-hmm. from the design to construction to day labour projects mm-hmm. and then moving you into different regions. Okay. Um, so great grounding, uh, baptism of fire, one of my first jobs, um, having to confront uh, Russell Hins, right. the minister for everything back in those days. Yes. Um, I was in his territory in Narang doing right. my first job was uh, redecking the bridge at the Narang River, uh, over the Narang River. Right. So... Uh, very fun, very fun um, time at Main Roads. And, and then, did you have much uh, personal engagement with uh, Russ? Uh, back then I did. Right. Uh, in his territory, um, there's a big congregation. I had I had this foreman uh, as a graduate telling me he was running the job right. for about the first month and I was on the site and then uh, this big uh, congregation of people formed at one end of the bridge and, um, and the, the, the guy came across and it happened to be Russ Hintz's press secretary. Okay. And, uh, Said, oh, Mr. Hins would like to know who's in charge here. Like a, a word, we have all the residents of the, of the business owners. All oh, right. The business owners of Narang here would like to talk okay. to the person in charge. And then right. I looked around and the foreman had bolted. <laughs> so an impromptu uh, community engagement uh, exercise. Okay, it was. And I'd been doing enough reading and I, I knew enough how to bring the bridge in right. um, a, a month or so earlier and um, dispel some of the myths that okay. the, the, re- the, the business owners were coming up with. and. Uh, but I did promise to work seven days a week, which I, I didn't know much about industrial relations back then. Oh, right. And so I got into all sorts of troubles by um, my um, bosses, etc. and I thought I was going to get sacked on my first job. Right. Called up the head office, and uh, back then the district director, Arthur Jewell, said, um, I must say, you know, you should have spoken to us and yeah. um, done all the right things. You didn't, but um, Mr. Hens has... Uh, asked me to call you in and tell that young fella he did good. <laughs> oh, well, I mean, at that time, I worked in a restaurant and Russ was, uh, he would come in, he had his own special chair, uh, only for him. So, I mean, he was a big personality on the scenes uh, back in those days. So that's quite an endorsement yeah. for you. And so um, you worked with uh, Main Roads for about five, four or five years? Four, four years on the Gold Coast, and yeah. then they moved me to Cairns. Okay. And I was the area engineer for Cook, Douglas, Harakoon, and Torres Shires. Right. If you know your geography, that's the pointy bit yep. of Australia. Yep. So big territory, government four-wheel drive. Mm-hmm. Doing work in Aboriginal missions, sealing streets, building bridges, getting um, farmers' product to market, enabling them to get to market two or three months earlier. Than, than usual, very rewarding, right. very rewarding as far as improving the quality of life. Um, yeah. And the, the community uh, valued mm-hmm. um, valued you and the work that Main Roads did, mm-hmm. um, as opposed to working in a big city, all you do mm-hmm. is get grief. And uh, Cairns is a, a bit of a fun place to live for a couple of years when you're a younger guy, isn't it? Well, it was, it was. It was um, a fabulous place, a um, bit of a different culture now. Sure, um, definitely. That's where I met my wife, Therese, as okay. well. Okay, all right. Yeah, yeah. And we're just reflecting on that. It was her 50th 
birthday yesterday and we're coming up to our 30th right. wedding anniversary and so that's that's where I met her in Cairns. And, and so she, you, I mean Innisfail's not that far from uh, Cairns really, North Queensland, is she a North Queensland lady as well? No, no, Sydney. Okay, right. Sydney, totally different uh-huh. um, background in food. Okay. Um, but so uh, we've gone to, to raise a couple of um, great um, boys, yeah. Sam and um, and Maddie. Okay. So I'm uh, very proud of them. And yeah, looking at our next stage of life now, as um, Maddie finishes his final year of school, um, we're just thinking about the, the future. But, right. um, but back then, back then, um, I then was asked to move to Concurry, and okay. then I, I could feel happening to me what happened, you know, the father. Yeah. Um, you, you know, like you, you got to move. Yeah. Um, and I said, I'm, I don't want to do that. Right. And so I resigned from Main Roads, and mm-hmm. uh, at that stage too, interesting with Main Roads. They sort of knew everything, or thought they knew everything. Right. And um, I started questioning some of the local government engineers and others doing things in a much more efficient, mm-hmm. um, productive way, and um, I, I just started to wonder, so I thought it was time to move on. Okay. Um, so I went into local government in right. New South Wales. Yeah. Um, Coffs Harbour City Council. Right. And I started uh, there as a roads and traffic engineer sure. and ended up as their principal design engineer. And so what did you notice culturally was the difference between working in main roads as a, a government department and then going into local government? Yeah, um, a big difference. In, in fact, um, it was a much more difficult, that transition was much more difficult than me going from local government to private sector. Right. Um, reason why, I, th- I think um, I found the state government, so you were protected. Okay. From, you were arm's length from the community. Okay. Um, there was a lot of um, you know, head office. Yeah. A lot of people telling you what to do. Right. Uh, whereas you got into local government, it was it was you. Yeah. Um, you had to do it yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, you were the grassroots level with the community. Mm-hmm. Uh, nowhere to go, nowhere to hide. Um, in the newspaper, if you every day, if you if you wanted to be. Yeah. Um, but I found it very rewarding as well, mm-hmm. um, and getting that close contact with the community and doing things to you know help assist, improve mm-hmm. um, infrastructure and the, the lifestyle you know, in, in that Coffs Harbour area. So I learned lots. Had a couple of really good bosses, very very good engineers. Okay. Um, and also your your um, relationship with the councillors. Right. Also, you know, in council meetings, it wasn't a massive council, but mm-hmm. nevertheless, you'd turn up and mm-hmm. um, it's really, I, I put down to my good report writing skills okay. coming through local government. And okay. Very early lesson in me writing what I thought was a good report. Council was all accepting it, um, but accepting something totally different from what I meant. Right. And so I reread my report and realised you could have read it two different ways. Okay. And so, big lesson. Made sense to a traffic engineer, but not to a councillor. Right, because and typically they're coming out of the community and they don't necessarily right. have any expertise in the areas that they're, you know, are responsible for managing on behalf of their community. Are they? Exactly right, mm. Richard. Exactly. So really, I honed my report writing skills in understanding the audience you're writing to, mm-hmm. and really that paved the way for mm-hmm. me in the private sector actually mm-hmm. to be a good report writer and. Uh, good at proposals and understanding or writing, um, you know, f- from the audience's perspective. Mm-hmm. And so, what eventually uh, took you out of uh, local government then into um, PB, uh, yep. which is obviously a very different beast. Look, it was. Um, it was actually back in those days, PPK or Packpoint Ebone, which, uh-huh. which PB bought out. But um, 
It was our first child, actually. It was, okay. um, and, and probably still the most defining moment in our careers as he was very ill. Okay. Um, and heavy, heavily uh, um, allergic to any chemicals. Right. Um, in the end, it was we, we weren't sure what it was in Coffs Harbour. It was either you know aerial banana spraying back in those days, okay. but he, he couldn't tolerate any foods with preservatives, additives, any plastics, glues. Right. Um, he spent uh, many months of his first year in hospital, mm-hmm. um, tube fed. Um, mm-hmm. We we feared for his life. Right. And so we had to get back to um, some support family. So mm-hmm. it was either Sydney or Brisbane. So mm-hmm. we, we chose Brisbane. Okay. And quite frankly, I, I took the first job on offer. Right. Um, however, having said that, um, I knew it wouldn't be government because I, I had uh, put myself through a postgraduate diploma in management yeah. um, at council. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I did that and I really enjoyed the management and strategy part and the, the, the notion of corporate uh, life, right. private sector. So I had to have a go at that. Um, so I took a job at uh, PPK, which mm-hmm. ended up being a fourteen-year career right. with them. Um, and at the same time, you know, the most important thing is we got our son well. We built our first chemical-free home. Mm-hmm. Uh, gone on to build another two after mm-hmm. that, and uh, really got strict with his diet and help. And uh, he started turning the corner health-wise, which was fabulous. And uh, I started my career in the private sector. Right, and uh, the role director of markets, so what did that mean? Okay, that was where I ended up in right. PB. Yeah. Um, and that was a national role. Okay. Where um, matrixed organisation, but I looked after the strategy and the, the client um, strategy and the sales for um, uh, Australia Pacific okay. um, region. Right. So really in a strategy sense, where, where, where we headed, which mm-hmm. clients, made sense and really inculcating a culture of client focus throughout PB. Which, okay. So um, you were there for 14-odd years. Yeah. So um, what was it that you were doing that got you on the radar to move into that kind of a role? I mean, at the, the time you were renting, essentially you were a well-qualified and experienced engineer, but uh, other than having done some uh, postgraduate qualifications in business, uh, how did you start to build your leadership and strategy expertise? Yeah. Look, on the job, really, on the job. Um, when you're bidding big jobs such as Airport Links or Pacific Motorways or in those days Gold Coast Light Rail, Brisbane Light Rail, um, you sort of had to think big yep. um, in a master planning sense and think of a whole of city type um, improvements and functionalities. I was able to do that really well and, and swim in the client's mind, Okay. really. Uh, I think I had a knack for trying to understand, and having worked in government, mm-hmm. I think, uh, helped me enormously. Um, really try to think as to what they were trying to achieve. Yeah. And I, I had a good ability of really meeting with them and understand what they tr- wanted to, to achieve and then able to articulate that in a, into a proposal mm-hmm. and win work, mm-hmm. win work. And I, and I think in that winning the work and building profile and then always doing a good job, I, I, something that does get me off um, in the private sector is doing a good job for a client. Right. That, that sounds a bit naff. Sure. Um, however, get that internal feeling when you get some praise from a client, you know, mm-hmm. you, know you get that warm, um, fuzzy feeling, yeah, I've done a good job, and that still turns me on mm-hmm. to, to, um, today. And I suppose that 14-year period was quite uh, uh, pivotal, um, uh, 
period to take you to where your career has gone to. Did you lean on any specific internal mentors or were there particular things that you decided that you needed to do in order to to help you to grow into those responsibilities? Yeah, quite a few. I was always, I guess, in charge of my own career. I think everyone has to be. Um, but my boss back those days was um, Mike Wilkie, okay. and good mentor. In fact, I'm catching up with Mike tomorrow. Right. And I still, he's retired now. I still catch him every now and then. Um, but look, he certainly helped me and then pushed me into different positions mm-hmm. um, that really enabled me to expand and grow. Right. Um, but I was always looking for it. Okay. Um, but he always accommodated me in that space. Right. So you were stepping into roles that were probably a big stretch for you and he was supporting you in growing into the responsibility. Look, absolutely. So I was well known in Queensland, doing a good job, built the business here yeah. in that infrastructure space very strongly. Um, but then, you know, really pushed me into the, the national role. Okay. And therefore building relationships and contacts and understanding how the country works. Mm-hmm. Um, and then designing your strategy around um, uh, those clients around Australia. So yeah, it, it pushed me, um, into that um, and so that's where then I really did build a, a, a solid national sort of reputation or okay. rapport with a lot of key people in our industry. Right and so good place to work you're getting plenty of opportunity you've got a boss who uh, you know was uh, very supportive of your career growth what eventually uh, led to you exiting? Okay well Mike, Mike left he went and became the ran the US for PB. Right. Um, had a couple of uh, new bosses in there, and um, look, in the end, I, I wasn't. I ran out, ran out of inspiration. Right. Uh, I think I had hit a hit a cap mm-hmm. as far as those people were concerned. Mm-hmm. Um, they still wanted me in that role, doing a good job, but I knew I wanted to do more. Okay. Um, I was still interested in business, um, running the business. Yeah. Not just. I, th- I thought I was pigeonholed. Okay. Um, not, not me. Um, other people had pigeonholed me is a better way of putting it. Right. And so I, I think it was time. The only way to escape that, no matter what I was doing, mm-hmm. you know, you, you could see their eyes glaze over and go, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, okay. I could see I was never going to get any further. Mm-hmm. And so it was a matter of then moving. Right. And I have one question. Uh, you you uh, had made this decision very early on that you didn't want to be... Uh, dragging your kids around. Uh, so for that entire period, were you able to remain um, uh, your family based here in Brisbane? Absolutely. Right. Been here the whole time. Right. Had two houses. Okay. So that worked um, well. Worked well. Um, maybe if we reflect back, probably too too much travel, too much time away from home. Yeah. In a national role, and then um, yeah, with Hyder, which we'll get to once again, national role, and then mm-hmm. becoming the CEO. Mm-hmm. Um, in hindsight, too much travel to the right. detriment of straining relationships. Yeah. Um, I think that's all on an even keel now. Right. But I've worked hard at that recently to really get that balance. Um, yeah. So that's an interesting um, perspective. I caught up with a, a lady yesterday who's um, uh, in a role that gives her the responsibility to travel nationally regularly, and and in her mind is balancing her aspirations professionally with her family I mean do you think that you would have been uh, able to have achieved what you have professionally and the kind of satisfaction you get if you'd made a decision that you weren't going to travel that much yeah hard one I I reflect on this often I reflect on it often Um, perhaps perhaps um, I would have had to do it differently Um, sometimes you need a bit of a lucky break within an organization Mm -hmm. 
but my national uh, reputation and relationships with mm-hmm. key clients were built through face-to-face yeah. and working on projects with them interstate mm-hmm. and you build your reputation which enabled me to um, re- really be the front runner for the job at Hyder when it came up to be mm-hmm. the, the Australian Managing Director. So you could have been um, compromised. And, and, and so it was. I, I still think I could have dealt with um, the presence at home a lot better. Um, um, I think I could have done it with a little bit reduced travel mm-hmm. and a much more focus at home and all grain in hindsight, but I'm, sure. I'm clear on it now. Right. Very, very clear on it now yeah, as, well, as to what uh, to do, yeah. Okay, great. And so, uh, and then into Haida. So, um, uh, what was it about Haida specifically that attracted you at the time? Uh, it's potential. Okay. Really. Um, so another learning, a little bit of a backward step for me. Okay. Um, for, for me, it paid off. Um, but moving PB to Haida, it's a much smaller company, uh, similar sort of role, but I, I, I took on corporate... Um, services so HR legal IT all of that as well as strategy mm-hmm. and clients mm-hmm. um, enabled the MD at the time um, Keith Reynolds to really focus on growth and other things okay um, and so that was exciting I could see the potential right with with uh, higher being publicly listed mm-hmm. and its acquisition path which is something that had always mm-hmm. um, intrigued me and something I wanted to get involved with okay sure and uh, it was great and then Keith ended up moving on mm-hmm. um, and I got the, the gig from the new CEO, mm-hmm. CEO who at that time sat in London. Right. Um, Ivocado, so he had faith in me, and that, that was probably about eight years ago now. Okay. Um, so that that was um, that was great. Um, he wanted a, a market um, facing mm-hmm. CEO who mm-hmm. understood the industry, could apply that to strategy. Um, good with people, of course, and then make sure you've. Uh, the money rolls in. Right, and so when um, you uh, stepped into the overall uh, CEO or managing director role, what what was the mandate given to you at that time? Greg, this is what we want you to deliver in terms of the future aspirations of HIDA. Yeah, absolutely, and I was uh, part of the HIDA Global Exec Board, Yeah, making decisions globally as to directions, so it was very clear that growth okay. um, was, was a mandate. Um, most shareholders are after that. Yeah. Um, as well as a, a decent return. Okay. Uh, a decent return. And Hyder was struggling in some parts of the world, other mm-hmm. than Australia. We had a, a golden run for about four years where we were contributing about uh, 50% of the Hyder global profits. Right. Okay. Yeah, through some great projects we had here. And the idea was to grow predominantly through acquisition? Um, yes. So I did about. Uh, Four acquisitions okay. in, in about four years. Yeah. So that worked well. Plus, strategically, we we set up our what we call global excellence centres in Manila and Bangalore. Okay. Really to provide our and, and drive growth through um, those um, those avenues as well. And that's so you're talking about a virtual workforce there. Yes, it is. But the, the difference is, but full engineering, okay. not not just drafting. Yeah. Um, and they're part of our team. Right. Um, and at the time that you were doing that, was that something that you were seeing your competitors doing, or were you leading the market in that regard? I think we were leading the market. Right. And and it all it all um, it played out that way. The mm-hmm. reason Arcade is bought Hyder mm-hmm. was for those global excellence centres. Okay. Right. And uh, for me in Australia here, about twenty percent of our man hours mm-hmm. are completed through mm-hmm. those global excellence centres. Mm-hmm. And I suppose there'd be many people listening to this podcast 
even small businesses that are thinking about do we uh, have a virtual team sitting in the Philippines or wherever it might be. What, in your experience, you know, what were the elements of that that worked really well and what were some of the things that in hindsight you might have done differently in that regard? Hard yards, uh, to be honest, really, really hard. It's, it's, it's a cultural, in the end, it's a real cultural thing. Mm-hmm. Um, what do I mean by that? It's got to be driven by the top. Mm-hmm. Um, each country has its own sort of protectionism as far as jobs go mm-hmm. and, and other people can't do it as well as us. Um, but there's this obviously a cost differential um, and it's a numbers game. And yeah. Australia produces 9,000 engineers a year. Right. Um, the Philippines, 60,000. Wow. Um, India, the Bangalore region, mm-hmm. um, um, almost a million. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a, a numbers and they produce very good engineers mm-hmm. um, so it's got to be driven from the top um, it, it, systems and processes are very important mm-hmm. uh, getting the, the ownership was the big learning mm-hmm. for us um, not considering it as outsourcing outsourcing or a virtual team it's yeah. really party team right so um, I take account or my team leaders here take account for career paths mm-hmm. turnover um, the quality of work, mm-hmm. all those sorts of things. So, um, it really is, they really are part of our team, and that's right. that's, that's probably been the key um, for us. Okay, and certainly from a recruitment point of view, you know, watching the engineering consulting space over the last few years, particularly uh, with the GFC and with you know the challenges that the mining industry is facing and so on, that um, has having a macro external effect, and then within organisations. Uh, building teams, uh, international teams to get economies of scale is having a tremendous effect too. So um, if you were looking at people who are graduating from engineering in Australia now, you know, what, what would you say to them? What's their future going to look like? Yep. Yeah, good question. We, and that's one of the, the big questions that our staff raise. Well, you know, if we're going to send all our work, detailed design work offshore, um, what's the future? Mm-hmm. <coughs> I think it's enormous because our jobs get bigger and more complex. Mm-hmm. And we have to um, put um, lots of people onto these big projects and when they close down, put lots of people off. We just can't continue doing that. Um, so in a graduate sense, there's still opportunity. Mm-hmm. The, the pie's still here. We still haven't got enough engineers in Australia to, to, to really um, match the work. Um, right, and so when you say you don't have enough engineers, do you mean graduates coming through or people with depth of experience? Uh, it's a bit of both, a bit of both. But I, th- I think that the, the challenge for graduates for me now is when we hire our graduates, um, not only have high EQ, you expect that. Right. Um, must have high EQ. Um, we, we want our graduates to be able to converse with a client, yeah. understand the client's needs, mm-hmm. um, run a team. Mm-hmm. And so we've got quite a different perspective on the, the graduates we now employ. Right, high IQ, high EQ, yeah. and the uh, the latest thing, although it's not that recent now, is NQ, networking capability, that ability to build networks and build communities and build personal brand, I imagine, is very important also. Yeah, as they move through their graduate years into those mid-levels, sure. um, absolutely. Um, so that client-facing mm-hmm. aspect of you know, for ultimately for graduates is very important mm-hmm. to us. And what about uh, in terms of uh, artificial intelligence and uh, technology, is that going to have a big impact on the engineering space and what are the sort of 
areas that you're preparing for in that regard? Mm, absolutely, absolutely. One way um, working with right now, BIM or building information modelling or digital engineering, we designed the Walkeraka maintenance depot here. Right. Which goes through uh, six dimensions okay. now. So you have your normal three dimensions. Yeah. Um, but then you, you put in cost, um, time, and also um, asset management. So right. you, you actually, um, it's a great collaboration tool. You get the owners of the building, mm-hmm. um, designers, architects, all contribute to the one model. Right. Um, we've done this for Westfield on some of their projects as well, where okay. you design on an iPad, they walk into a basement with a plethora of pipes there, they'll hold it up, it matches the pipes, right. and it'll tell you the maintenance regime required. Right. So wow. we're, we're really driving that through our Manila, Manila office. Okay. Um, but the big things that'll change uh, in infrastructure, um, particularly transporter autonomous vehicles. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's, we're all putting some deep thought into that. Okay. Um, that has the ability to really change the world. Um, right. If you don't own a car anymore, you can dial up one, mm-hmm. it comes to your door. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the new public transport. Yeah. Do you need mass transport mm-hmm. um, with autonomous vehicles? Right. It's big question marks. Um, um, how does that change the, the face of the city? Do you need all the parking space? Right. Um, sure. And so uh, it, it, it has an enormous potential impact. Mm-hmm. Um, we're looking at, um, in, a, in, a, in a mass transport sense mode now, mm-hmm. mobility-oriented development. Um, where we've done some work within Arcadis to look at the best transport hubs in the world from a from an access perspective, perspective but a financial and, and an ec- economic return perspective. Right. And from a social placemaking perspective. What does that mean? And so they're not just transport hubs anymore. Mm-hmm. They're places where people live and play. Mm-hmm. People need to make money mm-hmm. and returns. So. We're really looking at a more far reach and the surrounds of that mm-hmm. um, facility. So we're, we've just released a, a global report on that. We right. just won our first job to look at Sydney Central Station okay. as to its um, functionality. Right. Grand Central Station in New York comes out at number one. Um, number one in terms of what? Um, that whole mode, that, that the combination of all those things of social placemaking, economic returns, mm-hmm. accessibility, um, mm-hmm. the best um, uh, hub in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's fascinating. Uh, uh, I have a preconception that uh, uh, futurists and designers and so on are thinking these thoughts and eventually it then trickles down to the engineers to make it happen. But it sounds to me as though in many respects a lot of this thinking is engineering design led. So from a point of view of um, Hyde and Arcadis, uh how do you balance the, the economic requirement to be delivering work, which is where you make your money, and at the same time having this crystal ball of the future uh, and investing in intellectual property, hoping that if we can prove our capability, then it's going to create opportunity? Yeah. I think you just have to do that investment. Um, right. We've got smart people um, mm-hmm. around the world from designers and construction managers through to people doing business advisory type work. We, uh-huh. Because we work along the full um, asset life cycle mm-hmm. of, of a project or you know, a company, um, right from its feasibility through to its implementation and then reimagining you know, that asset mm-hmm. or, or reinventing that asset 
we get a lot of insights. I'm sure. So it's quite easy often to pull a group of people in there, mm-hmm. have a discussion um, globally, and get our thoughts together, and then um, really get someone to pull that together and look at that crystal ball gazing without a great deal of expense. Right. Um, because our, our, you know, our people is about brains. You know, we, sorry, our business is about people with brains. Right. Yeah. And so what are, what are some of the newer skill sets that you're employing, uh, you know, uh, role families that perhaps five years ago were never part of the business? Oh, sure. In, um, in Australia, for instance, um, in a business advisory sense, um, you know, Gareth Robbins has just joined us out of the, the UK. Right. Um, you know, he advised, for instance, the Qatari government on the whole procurement model. Right. Um, you know, for all the infrastructure for the, the World Cup okay. in, in uh, a few years. Right. Um, Terminal 5 in London. So, uh, higher level uh, thinkers. Yeah. And looking at a whole program for a city, mm-hmm. perhaps not just individual projects. Right. And so, we're seeing a lot of governments outsourcing that now. Okay. And so, we've invested in those types of skills um, to, to for a job for one of our key global clients, mm-hmm. Shell. Mm-hmm. Um, looking at you know, regional operations of mm-hmm. some of their airports and things like that. Okay. Um, and so for yourself, um, uh, you are leading a large team of people. No doubt you have to keep uh, your own uh, awareness relevant and, and that requires a lot of time uh, looking outwards in terms of what's happening. What are some of the ways that you uh, stay abreast of what's going on in the world? Um, get involved. Um, I have a little leadership model is that the first couple of steps of that is you know show up but no good showing up unless you can speak up right um, so it's good having opinions and getting yeah. those out on the table and mm-hmm. then listening to people react to those mm-hmm. um, so testing um, and then showing up as I said showing up so I'm a, I'm a board member uh, for Roads Australia yeah um, which is really looking at the future mm-hmm. for transport and infrastructure in Australia so mm-hmm. you get to meet and deal with lots of people sure all different avenues um, also, I have a fair bit to do with Consult Australia, mm-hmm. and I'm a, um, chairman of their Champions of Change for Gender Diversity. Okay. Now, I'm a big fan on diversity, so I, I do like getting in diverse groups yes. and, and listening to different people from different backgrounds mm-hmm. and their thinking. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I really relish that. Um, so it's putting yourself out there in those positions where um, you're not hearing the same old, same old. Mm-hmm. You know, what are the different perspectives? Mm-hmm. Um, and really taking that on board and then forming your own opinions and then putting those out there mm-hmm. for people to either agree, disagree or generate a debate. Mm-hmm. Um, so, th- so that's probably how I go about it. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation and I'm really looking forward to welcoming you back to the Arate podcast for future episodes. In the meantime, have a fantastic day.